The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." The last enemy is to destroy, to, dis, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected. It is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son of then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the very word of God. Well, good morning. If you're new or visiting with us, my name is Bryce Johnson, uh, and it is a joy to open up God's Word with you. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're in the passage that Derek just read for us. Um, and before we jump in, we're going to play a game together, all right? So I hope you came ready to dive into that. I'm going to say a quote. It's going to be from a, a line from a movie or a book or a song or a TV show. Um, and then you're going to say either uh, who said it or what it's from. Sound good? All right, so, so here, here's the first one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tales of Cities. All right, man, you guys got that quicker than the 9 a.m. May the force be with you. Star Wars, man, same thing. More of you know Star Wars than Charles Dickens and Tales of Cities, but that's okay. It's okay. Um, I walk a lonely road, the only road that I have ever known. Green Day, there you go. Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Last one. Jason Derulo. That's right, every Jason Derulo song, every. You know you're listening to a Jason Derulo song because he says his name in it. We know these lines, right? They've, they've become baked into our cultural vocabulary. Um, they're easily recognizable. You could say them one to another and you can be uh, understood. They're, they're, they're baked in some significant and sometimes silly ways, right? So I'm sure if I ask you, you could quote some lines from your favorite movie or your favorite TV shows. 
Um, or maybe you know every lyric to every Taylor Swift song ever. And in verse 33, Paul quotes a line from a famous playwright of the day, a playwright named Menander. And he quotes this line, the, the line uh, that uh, De- um, Derek just read for us, bad company ruins good morals. And it was a famous line. They would have known it. And then Paul says, hey, you've been intoxicated by the world because you know more about the influences of your day than you know about God. He says, you're ignorant of God and how he's working, but you know all about pop culture. You know all about uh, what culture is talking about. And then he says, I say this to your shame. Just in case you missed it, I'm shaming you right here. (laughs) Now here's the thing. The Corinthians were boasting that they did have knowledge about God. Right? They, they, they knew secret and deep things about God, but their beliefs and their actions show that they actually didn't know God or what he was doing in the world. And so I want to remind you of the context we've been in. We've been in chapter 15 for the last, uh, uh, this is the third week, um, and the Corinthians were being influenced by the culture, uh, by the philosophy of the day that said, um, hey, we know resurrection doesn't happen. That's silly. And so the Corinthians were saying, hey, Christians are not going to be raised from the dead. Right? They, they, were, they were trying to marry some Greek philosophy with Christian theology or with, with theology. And it might feel like a minor point, right? Just, just, just an aspect of interpretation. But what we've been seeing is Paul says, hey, to deny the resurrection is to actually deny the gospel. To deny the resurrection, the, the, the whole thing falls apart. And so what we've been seeing in this chapter is what it means to know God, right? What it means to know God. To know God is not just to know facts about him, like like you might know facts about your favorite athlete or your favorite uh, musician, right? um, I could tell you that I know Kevin Durant uh, because we went to to college together. Um, I met him at at an IM basketball game. Um, I, I could tell you Wikipedia facts about him, right, like where he was born, where he went to school, the team that he's played on. But at the end of the day, you would look at me and you would know, Bryce, you don't really know him. You know some things about him, but you, you don't really know him. And I know his name is still offensive to many of you guys. So before you check out for the rest of the sermon, all you Thunder fans, you can rest. I really don't know Kevin Durant that well. To have knowledge of God is to know what he has done and what he will do in Jesus. See, Jesus is not only the, the central figure of the Bible, though he is. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. He's the central figure of history. Because Jesus is how God has revealed himself to us as a person. And it's in Jesus, in Jesus' life, in his death and his resurrection, that we know what God is doing in the world and what that actually means for us. And so maybe you're like the Corinthians this morning. Right? You could tell me more about uh, The Office or your favorite show than you could about God. Or maybe you feel like you don't know God at all, much less articulate the hope of the resurrection. I hear this morning, I, I want to unpack what, what it means to know God. See, to truly know God is to know him as he's revealed himself in the son, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. In fact, it's no coincidence that Paul opens up this letter, opens up 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 2, just talking about the gloriousness of the cross of Jesus. And now he's closing his letter, 
right? Talking about the gloriousness of the resurrection. This is what it means to know God. And so two weeks ago, we talked, we walked through the gospel that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ uh, was risen in accordance with the scriptures. And last week, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus. And, and what would be true if the resurrection didn't happen? What would the implications be? And today, we're going to unpack some of the consequences of the resurrection. See, there is a disconnect for the Corinthians between what they believed and how they lived. Right? There's an actual disconnect between what they believed or what they said they believed and then how they actually walked that out. And so this morning in our passage today, Paul's going to lay out, hey, here are some things to believe and specifically believe about the future. There's some consequences for our future that the resurrection necessitates. And then there are some implications for how we're to live, for how we're to live. So we're going to spend some time talking about, hey, what, is, what, are we, what are we supposed to believe about our future? What is going to happen in our future? And then how do we thus live? You guys with me? All right. Uh, so we've got just a copy of the scriptures. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Remember, he's been talking about, hey, what would happen if Christ hadn't been raised? Walk through nine verses of his theory, and now he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first consequence for our future is that we will be raised like Jesus. The first thing to know is we will be raised by, like Jesus. Jesus has been raised, and Paul says, hey, he's the first fruits. Now, it's an agricultural term, um, and if you've been coming for any length of time, you have heard me say over and over, I am uh, no gardener by any means. I had to look this up. But here's what first fruit means, right? First fruits are like those first buds of spring, right? You've, you've planted, you've toiled the soil, uh, you've done some work, and first fruits are the first fruits, the first flowers of what's to come. And, and, and they tell us a few things, right? It tells us two things. One, it tells us more is coming, right? It's the first fruits. It's the beginning of a larger harvest. It's not a one-time event. It's not a one-time uh, deal. It's the beginning of a larger harvest. And the second is it tells us what the rest of the harvest will be like. It's a preview of what's to come, right? If you, if you planted a strawberry bush, right, and, and the first strawberry comes out, it's giving you a glimpse of what you can expect in the rest of the harvest. In other words, Paul is saying Jesus' resurrection tells us that those who belong to him will be actually resurrected like him. And he tells us what the resurrection will be like. It will be a literal resurrection. This is not a metaphorical resurrection, right? This is not Jesus was raised metaphorically. It's going to be a literal resurrection. It will be a physical resurrection, not just a spirit, but, but, but physical bodies. Jesus' disciples were able to put their fingers in uh, the holes of uh, where the nails went in, right? Jesus ate breakfast on a beach after his resurrection. It will be a physical resurrection, and it will be a bodily resurrection. Our bodies will be raised in glory. And Paul's going to spend some time actually unpack this a little bit. And so uh, next week, Derek Chapin has the unique privilege of preaching on what resurrection bodies are going to look like. So if you have questions, you know, you're going to be like, man, am I going to be more attractive, less attractive? You know, am I going to, is my hair going to grow back, whatever? Derek's going to have all the answers. Come next week, bring your questions. He's got you. Jesus is the first fruit. He, he is a glimpse of what's to come. But, but how do we know this? How do we know this? Paul tells us, verse 21. Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So he's saying when Adam sinned in the garden way back in the beginning, the consequence for him and all who followed him was death. Right? Adam is a representative. He's a representative for all of humanity. And sin brings forth death, and death came into the world because of Adam. And so the inheritance for all of us who are born into Adam and united with him is death. That's our inheritance. That's what's coming our way. But Jesus is also a representative. And he's the representative of all who would believe and trust and follow him. And Jesus brings forth life and resurrection so that all who belong to him have a different inheritance. And just as you and I didn't do anything to inherit the death that came from Adam, you and I don't do anything to inherit the resurrection that comes from Jesus. We are brought in because of his work and we receive it through grace, through faith. Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, there's that word again, firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Just saying, hey, do you know when the rest of the harvest is, is going to be uh, brought in? When Jesus comes back. We're not just living in perpetuity till we die. Just as Jesus went up into heaven, he will return, not to take us to some far off place, but to raise us here in a new heaven and a new earth. See, our ultimate home is, hope is not that we'll uh, die and our souls will float off into the sky to play harps on clouds. It's to have physical resurrection. And this isn't just a general resurrection for all people everywhere. He tells us it's it belongs to those who belong to Christ. Verse 18 says, uh, he's talking about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. The resurrection of the dead is for those who belong to Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. You're part of this verse here. This is what's coming for you. And so this truth guarantees that those who die in this life, if they are in Christ, death is not the end of the story. Jesus' resurrection means that we will be raised like Jesus. The second consequence for our future is that evil will be destroyed and all will be made right. Evil will be destroyed and all will be made right. He tells us in verse 24, he says, Then comes the end when he, being Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So, so Paul quotes two passages from the Old Testament, specifically Psalms here. And so here's a side note. If you want to understand the New Testament better, spend more time in the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is the first that Paul quotes. And Psalm 110 talks about the Savior that God would send, God's King, the Messiah that he would send, and he would be King, and he would rule over all of God's enemies. Right? He would rule over all of God's enemies and make his enemies his footstool. And I've always thought, man, too bad the term Ottoman Empire is already taken. It would be a great term for all of God's enemies who are under his feet. Man, sorry, that's just a dad joke. I'm just in that mode right now. The psalm talks about the Messiah, the Messiah as a victorious king who, who rules and reigns, and, and the people are actually glad about it because he's not oppressive, because he's just and loving and good. Does it sound like anyone you know or might have heard of? Psalm 110, about God's Messiah. 
But then Paul brings in Psalm 8, verse 6. And Psalm 8, verse 6 talks about what God created man for. And so Psalm 8, verse 4 says, this is the psalmist reflecting. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. He's reflecting, he's like, hey, this is what mankind was made for. Mankind was made for dominion over the earth. Right? Dominion over the earth and all things. But that hasn't been the case ever since Adam in the garden, who rather than having dominion over creation, allowed the creature to rule over him. And then the second Adam comes. Scripture calls Jesus the second Adam. Jesus, who is the Messiah that God sent, and yet is human. He's also a man. And where Adam failed, the true and better Adam comes and obeys and fully obeys, and thus has dominion over everything. And so here's the thing. In other words, Jesus is what it means to be truly and fully human. Jesus is where we find true humanness. To be truly human as God intended is not found in following Adam. Alexander Pope famously said, uh, to err is human, but Scripture says otherwise. Scripture says, hey, to err is Adam, but Jesus is truly human. And he is making us truly human. So do, do you know what it means that Jesus will destroy every rule and every authority and every power? Do you know what it means that Jesus will put all his enemies under his feet, including death? It means that Jesus is bringing justice. It means that Jesus is bringing justice. Evil will be destroyed and all will be made right. All enemies and all authority, every rule, all powers will be brought under the subjection of Jesus. So this means that all injustice, all violence, all cruelty, all wickedness, all evil is not going to keep going on and on forever. It's on a leash. It's on a leash and there's coming a day soon where it will come under God's judgment and be put right. God is a God of grace and mercy and love, but he's also a God of justice, which means that he deals with evil. He doesn't just tolerate it. He's going to deal with evil. And so the wickedness we see in the world and the unjust suffering that, that you and I have seen and you and I have experienced has a definite expiration date. And that means we can trust God even right now as we walk through difficult things. Friends, as Christians, we're we're people who fight for justice and we fight to overthrow wickedness where we see it. And yet there are some things that are out of our control, right? Primarily death. Scripture says the final enemy to be destroyed is death. And so, you know, despite cute sayings, death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. It's an enemy because it's not how the world was supposed to be. It's why we cry at funerals, not, not because we miss the person who died, though we do. It's because in the deepest parts of our being, we know that this is not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus is victorious over it. In the 1932 uh, World Series, Babe Ruth famously, uh, famously pointed out to the outfield, 
uh, he, he was up to bat. He famously pointed out to the uh, outfield to show where he was going to hit the ball, right? And so, so two strikes came by, and on the third, he swung the bat, right, hit the ball, and went exactly to the place in the bleachers where he had, uh, where he had predicted, where he had said it was going, right? It, it's, it's been famously called Babe Ruth's called shot. Right? And so if you've watched any movie about baseball, they reference it, right? Sandlot, you know, it's, it's there. The resurrection is Jesus calling his shot on his enemies, on all his enemies, including death, promising that full victory is, is coming. Jesus has defeated death, and when he returns, he will empty the tombs of those who belong to him, and death will forever be defeated. And so, friends, we can rest in the fact that vengeance and justice belong to God, who promises to put all things right. Jesus' resurrection means that evil will be destroyed and all will be made right. Verse 28 says, And when all things are, put, are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's a third consequence of the resurrection. It means that there's a day coming when we'll actually get to experience God as our everything. There's a day coming when we'll actually get to experience God as our everything. Here's what Paul said. The end goal for everything is that God would be everything to us. But our experience is different, right? We're, we're conflicted with other things that vie for our attention, for our affections. In the language of scripture, we're, we're drawn to other lovers. And so God is some of our all. And money is some of our all. And our comfort is some of our all. And our family is some of our all. Friends, this is part of the world that God is bringing. Jesus doesn't just save you a little bit. He doesn't just, he isn't just making your life a little bit better. Jesus is remaking everything. He's setting the world back to right. He's bringing us back to Eden. He's reordering what's disordered in our lives and our hearts. And he's giving us proper perspective and proper affection. Because the problem for us is not that we love other things too much. It's not that we love Netflix too much or our families too much or our bank accounts too much. The problem is that we love God too little. But there's coming a day when we can truly and honestly sing, God, you are my strength when I am weak. And you are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. God, I'm seeking you as a precious jewel because to give up, I would be a fool. You are truly my all in all. That day is coming. And so until that day comes, we keep singing, we keep hoping, we keep trusting, we keep reminding ourselves that one day our hearts will not be divided. One day these truths will be more than just aspirational. They're actually going to be our everyday experience. There'll be no more rivals Everything will be subject to God, and he'll be everything to all. Friends, these are things that are true about our future. These are things that we ought to believe and think about because they are our future. So what does that mean for today? So how does that impact how we live today? The passage ends with a bold declaration. It's a bold declaration, right? Verse 34, Paul says, wake up. He says, wake up, wake up. And he, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Right? He's calling them drunk. He says, hey, you're acting 
like you're not supposed to be acting. You're acting like you're drunk. Wake up so that you can live rightly. He's calling us to sober up. See, we're so prone to be intoxicated by the world, intoxicated with culture and with work and with ourselves and with our family. And they're good things. Yet they're good things that we get drunk on. And so we don't even see things rightly. He's like, hey, it's like you've got beer goggles on. You're not seeing rightly. Our vision and our walking are distorted because we're intoxicated on things that aren't of Jesus. And so maybe you used to love to dive into God's word and you poured yourself into Christian community, but lately your heart's just been elsewhere. Friends, what has you in a drunken stupor? Is it your work? Is it your schedule? Hey, is it your pursuit of comfort? If I were to summarize the last six verses of this passage, it could be summarized this way. This is what Paul's driving towards. He says, hey, live in such a way that's consistent with the gospel, that's consistent with the hope that you have. Saying, hey, live like the resurrection actually happened. Wake up and live like this is actually real. And so then he starts by addressing this practice that they have, which is, kind of, which is a kind of strange practice if when this text was read, I'm sure, like me, this was one of the ones that got your ears up, got your antenna up. Verse 29, right? Paul says, hey, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people getting baptized on their behalf? And I, I, I don't have any answers for you. I, I, I don't have any answers as to what Paul is re- referencing. Apparently, apparently, people were getting baptized for the dead. Right? Paul's referencing something that the Corinthians seem to be doing, but here's a problem. There's nowhere else in Scripture that, that we find any, any information about this. There's nowhere else in church history that anything like this is uh, recorded. Uh, and so I've read a lot of commentaries this week on this verse, a lot of theories out there. One commentator says, hey, there's like 40 different theories as to what Paul's talking about, and the only thing anyone agrees upon is they used to do something and the Christians stopped doing it, Right? So, so, so we, can, we don't need to spend a lot of time or energy trying to figure it out, trying to unpack what's going on. But here's Paul's point, right? Paul's point is he's trying to point out to them their own hypocrisy, right? Their own hypocrisy. He says, hey, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then why are you getting baptized on their behalf, right? See, their, Corinthians were saying their belief was there is no resurrection, right? That, that doesn't happen. And yet, by their practice... By their worship even, they were worshiping as if there was a resurrection. There was an incoherence. There was an incompatible. It was incompatible. That's the word. A lack of consistency in what they said they believed and how they actually lived. Christians, this is often our experience, right? We say with our mouths and believe in our heads that Jesus rose up from the dead, but then we still live like he's still in the tomb. And we sing, Christ is risen on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, we live in our own power and our own strength. We live incoherent and inconsistent lives. In fact, we forget that the power that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives within us. And we live as if we don't have hope. We live as if the only good news there is, is to enjoy the best life has to offer today. Friends, does your life reflect the hope of the resurrection? If someone were to ask your coworker or, or your neighbor, 
where your hope was? Would they say it's in the fact that Jesus got up out of the tomb? Or would they say something else? Would your Google search history or, or the accounts you follow on social media be consistent with the resurrection hope? Would your bank accounts tell a story that your hope is not in this world, your hope is not in this life, but in the one to come? Friends, where are the inconsistencies in your life? Where are the areas that you've blended a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of world and try to make it work? I know Christians that, that sing about grace and talk about grace and then in the same breath talk about karma that's going to come around and bite someone in the butt. It's incompatible, right? Karma and grace are incompatible. Christians, Christians talk about Jesus as being hope and security and the one whom we follow, the one we could bank our security on and then go around chasing power and influence as if that was where our security and power was. Paul says, wake up, wake up from your drunken stupor and live and worship as if Jesus was actually raised. Let your lives be consistent. Paul, Paul calls us to endure, to endure like Jesus was raised. He says, hey, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, listen, let us drink, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, hey, if Jesus wasn't raised, why am I allowing myself to be persecuted? Why am I willingly walking through these things? What can you possibly gain from walking through difficult things if resurrection doesn't happen? Right? We might as well enjoy what we have today since we don't know what's coming tomorrow. So get yours today. See, if our hope isn't in what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection, listen, then what good is it to do the right thing when things get hard? What's the point? Why love your husband when he's being insufferable? Why remain celibate or, or faithful to your spouse when temptation comes your way? Why, why do anything in the name of Jesus that might cause others to ridicule you or even persecute you? Right? If this life is all that there is, then it makes sense to live for your own pleasure, your own comfort, your own joy, even if it comes at the expense of others. Do you remember the first, the first verse of this section? It's the first verse of the section, the first verse that, that Derek read for us this morning. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. And that changes everything, right? That means we can endure suffering. We can persevere through difficult things, through trying and hard things, because Jesus is making all things right. Listen, because there's nothing that this world can throw at us, and there's nothing that we can lose that stands in comparison to a resurrected king who's bringing resurrection to you and me. Because if in this life only we have to endure suffering, it's light and momentary because of the glory Jesus is bringing when he comes back and puts all things right. When I was in college, I had a good friend of mine um, who was diagnosed with cancer. Her name was Esther um, she was 19, she was sweet, she was godly, she was beautiful, she was a leader in our student ministry. Um, and I was roommates with her boyfriend, and, and when she was 19, she got diagnosed with medulloblastoma. They, they, they found a tumor in her brain. And all of us were just, we were crushed, and, and we were praying 
like crazy for her. And, and Esther struggled with it. Esther struggled with why, why this had come upon her. Right? She, she believed in a sovereign God, and so she struggled with why a sovereign God would give her this cancer, would allow her to walk through this cancer. And like the rest of us, she, she had doubt, she had fear, she had anger. She walked through chemo, and the chemo seemed to work. She got better. And she started driving again. She signed up for classes again. She's hopeful about having cancer behind her. And then it came back. And after a few months, my friend Esther Boyla Polly walked from earth to eternity. Um, just really this past July 3rd was 14 years since she died. And after her funeral, I got to talk to her mom a few months after her funeral. And, and, and she was just re- recollecting those last two years. She said something happened in Esther that second round, that second time. She said, she said it was like a transformation. Whereas she was filled with doubt and anger and fear when the cancer returned, she said, Bryce, it was like, it was like a transformation happened in Esther. She was filled with hope and peace. It was this radical shift. She said, Bryce, it, Esther wasn't just accepting her diagnosis. She wasn't just coming to grips with the inevitability of it. She said, it was the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. It was trust that if God raised Jesus from the dead, then he would surely raise her. It was faith that if God raised Jesus from the dead, then she could trust him even right now. Even in the midst of cancer, she could endure with hope. I I love how theologian D.A. Carson puts it. He says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. We can endure because Jesus endured the shame of the cross, and we can endure because resurrection is coming. And so, friends, wake up and endure like Jesus was raised. The third and final thing we're called to is to, is to live repentant lives. Verse 34, Paul says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on singing. Sinning, not singing. Keep singing. Don't go on sinning. Wake up and stop continuing to live in sin. Continuing to live in sin. Friends, Christianity is not about never sinning. If that's true, one, you're going to screw that up pretty quickly, right? You're going to sin. And you're going to try to hide your sin from others. But following Jesus is one where repentance is a regular practice. The reformer Martin Luther said, uh, repentance, uh, a Christian life is one of Continual repentance. We fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue to turn to Jesus when we do fall in sin. Right? We're prone to be so distracted by the world that, that, that we can start to become numb to sin. And so the sin we were pretty easily sensitive to early on, now we've become numb to. It's like we've developed calluses. The sin you used to fight with regularity now just becomes part of your life. So maybe you used to be diligent about avoiding pornography, but now it's just a daily part of your phone habit. Maybe you found that instead of being seasoned with salt and grace, your speech is seasoned with bitterness and sarcasm that tears people down. And maybe you're here and you've actually gotten tired of fighting, tired of trying to live obedient lives. 
weary of battling the same addictions day in and day out, weary of struggling with the old habits. Maybe some of you have given up on loving hard family members. And you might be tired, you might be tired because you've been fighting in your own strength. You've been trying to live a life pleasing to God in your own power and your own ability. Several years ago, uh, I was trying to build a, um, a shelf, and I bought uh, a hacksaw because I, I needed to cut this piece. Um, and I don't know much about gardening, and I don't know much about, um, you know, woodworking. And so I was just trying to cut it, and I got really frustrated, really frustrated because I didn't seem to be making any progress. The hacksaw kept getting cut, stuck in, in this little piece of two-by-four wood. I, I couldn't figure out what's going on. And so like all... Uh, aspiring carpenters, I turned to YouTube and watched a video on how to use it. And I realized I was actually using this incorrectly. Because the way I was trying to saw it, I, I had the hacksaw, right? It's got the graded teeth. I had the two by four, and I was really trying to work it. I was really trying to put my strength into the saw so that it would cut this piece of wood, right? And I was really trying to push and pull, push and pull. And what the video said was like, hey, that's actually counterintuitive. What you do is you just let it sit on top of the wood and you just gently pull. And that's actually the most effective way to cut it. I w- it wasn't dependent on me or my strength or my force. I was actually making things worse. And friends, that's what so many of us are trying to do with our own sin. Don't you see? We, we, we missed it. Repentance is not about trying harder. Trying to press deeper into repentance is about turning to Jesus and looking upon him, looking at what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. So guys, do you remember at the beginning of the sermon what the problem was with the, with the Corinthians? He says, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. They had no knowledge of what God had done for them in Christ. Sure, they knew it in theory. They heard sermons about it but they weren't looking upon it. They they weren't drinking from the well of the gospel. They were drinking from the keg of the world, of their own power, their own reasoning, their own ability. They, They knew these things. They knew these things maybe about their future. They knew these things about what Jesus had done, but it wasn't reflected in how they lived. Friends, my call this morning is to look upon the gospel. Look upon the gospel and let that impact how you live. See, to live consistent with the gospel means that we repent often because our hope is not in our own ability to remain sinless, but Christ's ability to forgive and redeem us. Because Jesus is doing an incredible work, and our future is secure, and so we can live right now with the hope that's coming. This resurrection that promises beautiful, incredible things about our future. Listen, we're going to be resurrected with future glorified bodies. Jesus is putting all things right. He is dealing with evil and injustice forever. Hey, there's coming a day when you and I don't have to feel like we're hypocrites as we sing and worship because God will truly be our all in all. Friends, look upon the beauty and the gloriousness of what the resurrection has done. The call of scripture is, hey, now live like you actually believe it. Live like that's true. Endure like, like that's true. Hey, repent like that's true. Repent like you believe the gospel. That's a call to the early Corinthian church, and that's a call for you and I this morning. Would you bow your heads in prayer?